All right, turn with me to John 5. If you weren't able to attend the commissioning service last week, uh, towards the end of the service, Byron told a story about, uh, I had told him, I guess three or four months ago, my dad had this tradition when he would preach the book of the Bible when he got finished. The Bible had all of his notes in it, and the one that he preached from, he would give it to someone in the church. So I have one of his last Bibles that he preached from. It's in my office. So at the end of the service, the Bible that Byron spent, what was it, four years in, three years? I don't know how long it was. But he's preached Romans through. He gave that to me. And so I told him I would preach from that Bible this morning. And then I have another one that the elders gave me. Uh, So I'm pretty excited about continuing that tradition. And when we finish John, I'll pray about who I want to give it to. (laughs) John chapter 5. What's, what's been fun about John, the book of John, is I'm, I continue to learn uh, parts about Jesus that I really, I just, uh, I haven't thought about before. And John's really opened up my eyes to love and adore Christ even more. I recently had lunch with a visitor to our men's Bible study that we have on Tuesday nights. And this man I was having lunch with had grown, grown up. Uh, really not going to church at all. I'd been to church maybe two, three times as a kid. It was a Methodist church. And not really, doesn't have really much exposure to church at all. And what he did have was, was um, he was, was more distracted by what he saw than actually even hearing the gospel. And his experience was very similar to most in that who people were on Sunday was very unique to the rest of their lives. They pretended to be somebody they were not on Sunday, and then on Friday night, they were a completely different person. That's true in many churches today. It, it, it create, there's a culture that's created where it's dangerous to be yourself. You, you definitely don't want to show up with everybody knowing all of your dirty laundry. You will be judged and left feeling less than the required standard that should be met. Churches... Not where the sick and weak come to find hope and rest, but it's where the self-righteous come to find affirmation and motivation to continue in their self-righteousness. Five ways to succeed this week. If you're failing in dot, 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 here are the Bible verses that will fix your spiritual problems so you can live, as the phrase goes, the victorious Christian life. It's really faith in your performance to make yourself better, not faith in the work of Christ. That was his experience as we started to describe, I described for him the church that he grew up in, and he affirmed. You know, this kind of theology, this idea of church, it was what Luther, Martin Luther called several hundred years ago, a theology of glory. Writing about Luther's theology of glory is a man by the name of Gene Edwards Veith, and he said this, as describing what a theology of glory is. Expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, and my works. A a theologian of glory expects his church to be perfect and always to grow. If a theologian of glory gets sick, he expects God to heal him. And if he experiences failure and weakness, if his church has problems and if he is not healed, then he is often utterly confused, questioning the sufficiency of his faith and sometimes questioning the very existence of God. 
where we find Christianity today would be described in those two paragraphs. Confused and questioning their faith. It makes sense. If you've been told the Christian should be successful and all you see around you is unsuccessful Christians, then there is a problem either with you or with the theology. I was faced with the reality of a theology of glory very early in my Christian life when my dad passed away when he was 49. I was only 20 at the time. And the theology of glory didn't really fit what, was I, what, was I, what I was hearing being told to me about how the Christian life should work. We prayed for my dad to be healed. He was not healed. And we faced some pretty harsh realities afterwards. And I began to have to question, what does it mean to live the Christian life but yet suffer pain and suffer loss and suffer sickness? So did Jesus come to the earth to help us succeed in overcoming the pains of the world? That's what we are told in the theology of of glory. Jesus helps you succeed in life. But then you live long enough and go, okay, either Jesus is not very powerful or I'm broken. Like I'm the one that's wrong. If I just simply follow his instructions and we should find healing, victory, and success, but that's not my experience, so it must be me. What's happened is we've created this fantasy world where the good, the good Christian guy always wins. The underdog pulls out the victory and the guy always gets the girl. And anyone going through loss or suffering will tell you that simply isn't the world they live in. Not if they're a Christian. But that's what we've been told to think. Jesus came and fixed everything. He healed the sick, condemned the religious elite, and provided salvation for the loss, and now it's up to you. And herein lies the problem. What did Jesus actually accomplish when he came to earth? What was his goal? What was his mission? We credit him with healing the sick, but did he really heal the sick? They died. They don't exist today. So he gave them a temporary healing, but he didn't really heal them of the problem. Physically speaking, that is. Think about how many people were actually recorded to be healed in the Bible. Jesus walked into many places, healed a few, and then left the rest. You would think with the God of the universe who has all the healing power, but yet chooses to heal a few. It's very strange. So why did he do it this way? Why didn't he heal everybody? Well, the answer is, here in our passage. But this is what you're told. Well, Jesus didn't heal them because they didn't have faith. Jesus only healed people who believed in him. Those who believed, they received the healing. But Jesus didn't only heal those who believed, which is interesting. John 5 is a great example of how a theology of glory will not work if you read your way through the Bible instead of just pick and choose a couple of verses here and there. You're faced with this. I would not have picked John 5 to be my favorite Bible verse, my favorite life chapter. It's, you thought John 4 was confusing. John 5 is worse. Jesus makes us face some hard realities in this chapter. Realities that, in the end, will crush the Christianity we are raised on. But give us hope that nothing in this world can compare As you'll remember from the end of John 4, John John is unique 
in how he reports these stories. Very different than the other Gospels. He uses insights that are not obvious, but important to understanding the purpose of the story. With the story in John 5, we will pick up on several keys that John gives us to help us follow along with what Jesus is doing. You can't just gloss over the story and assume it's just a story about Jesus healing a lame man. Jesus is leading us toward an important, or John is leading us toward an important dialogue. The healing of this story is not the point of what John is, of what, what, uh, is, what the writer John is trying to tell us. So let's read through it and find out what it is that Jesus is actually accomplishing in John 5, which would be very different, I would say, again, to remind you of a theology of glory. Jesus is not bringing the success plan. So John 5, 1. After this, which is the healing of the official's son, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And we're not really sure about the time gap. John doesn't really follow a success, a, a sequence. He kind of just jumps all over the place. This could have been a year later. could have been a couple months later. We don't know. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which translates to be pool of mercy, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Notice John mentions that this place doesn't have a man that Jesus is seeing, but multiple people, groups of people. Now, how many of your Bibles go from verse 3 to verse 5? How many of you are missing verse 4? Interesting. Let me read to you what verse 4 is. It says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then, however, then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. There's a reason it was taken out, is that it's not original, part of the original text. It was added in later into older, or we would say newer, but older manuscripts. And it was uh, a scribe trying to help explain what was going on in the pool. That was his interpretation. That's why in newer translations it's taken out. But the numbering system was a part of an older English system, and so we have those numbers stuck in there from an older translation. What they're trying to do is explain verse 5, which we'll see here in a minute. So there's nowhere in Scripture we could ever confirm that an angel would come down and stir the water. As a matter of fact, there's no way to even confirm that anyone was ever healed at this pool. It just was the story. John, Jesus or John do not confirm or deny the fact that people were healed there. And it's not a part of the story. Verse 5. I just thought, in case you didn't catch that, you want to know why that's worth Now, there's more of this in John. There's actually, there's a whole section. You guys know the woman caught in adultery? We'll talk about that, and that's where I'll explain textual criticisms and why it's important. But that whole section is actually not in the original scripts, scripture either. But we'll talk about how to handle that so you can stay tuned for John 8. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When John saw him lying there and knew, sorry, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I'm not sure that's the question I would have asked that man. It's very clear he's at a place that they believe they can be healed. He's been there for 38 years. Jesus knew this just as Jesus could see Nathaniel under the tree. Jesus knew the woman had five previous husbands. So Jesus knew this man had been there for 38 years. And the question he seeks to ask him is, 
Do you want to be healed? Again, John is a strange book, and it continues to be strange. In chapter 4, he scolded a frantic father who was there to get healing for his son. You would think Jesus would be compassionate towards the man, but he scolds him. In this scenario, he asks the man, clearly, anyone who suffers for 38 years, no, I'm good, Jesus. I mean, I've been you know, living in my own waste, around smelly people who moan all day. Yeah, I'm good. I don't want to be healed. Of course the man wants to be healed. But pay attention to how the man answers this question. John is giving us something important here. Here's one of these little keys that he's going to give us. The sick man answered him, Sir, clearly he doesn't know who Jesus is. He would have called him Jesus Messiah, Master, but he doesn't. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going another steps, down before me. So the man told Jesus he wants to be healed, but does not have the power to do it. Also, no one was willing to help be the first person to get into the water. So this dialogue began. So Jesus says to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now here is an example of where a theology of glory will not work in the life of Jesus. How many people did Jesus leave behind? Because Jesus leaves immediately in the narrative. We are told there's blind, there's lame, there's a crowd of people on five different platforms. How many people saw this interaction and wondered why they were left blind, lame, and paralyzed? Now you can try and explain it away by looking at their faith, Jesus knew they wouldn't believe. But there's really only one answer, and Jesus is the one who's going to give it to us in this chapter. The end of verse 9 sets us up to follow what Jesus is doing. The end of verse 9 says this, Now that day was the Sabbath. Did Jesus know what he was doing? Did he know he was healing on the Sabbath? Of course he did. Did he know what kind of problem that would cause? I think so. Read verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Okay, again. Hey, how did you get healed? Maybe they assumed it was they, he, the pool healed them. Who knows? But all of a sudden, they see a guy, clearly, they identify as being healed, is carrying his bed, verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to uh, that, that man said to me, "Take up your bed and walk." And they asked him, "Who is the man who said to you, "Take up your bed and walk?" Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Now we will see later in John nine when Jesus uh, heals the blind man. It's a very different response than this man. The blind man runs throughout the city proclaiming what Jesus had done by faith, trusting in Jesus, and then eventually is persecuted for Jesus, defends him. This man throws Jesus under the bus first shot he got. Who did this? Why are you, why are you breaking the law? Well, he's afraid of the consequences. He doesn't want to be uh, condemned for this crime. 
says, oh, this man that healed me threw Jesus under the bus. Under the bus. Now, no, just a quick narrative explanation. What is, it, was it a sin to carry your bed on the Sabbath or carry anything on the Sabbath? And, and the answer to that is no, it was not. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that it's a sin. They were commanded not to work, to rest on the Sabbath day. The religious leaders came in and then created an additional law, creating legalism, creating additional law on top of that. And they said, okay, well, if you can't work, that means you can't carry anything, like a bed. They, even some writings said if a man had a wooden leg, he couldn't walk because technically he was carrying something. It was crazy, the level that they would go to. And that's, typically, legalism is crazy. It's not logical. It doesn't make any sense. It creates rules that, that in the end, if you look at it, just outside of Christianity, it doesn't make any sense. Back to, this, back to the point of the story. I think from the following verses, we'll see that the man actually never believes in Jesus as God. Which is a very unique situation. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, so some time had passed, we don't know how much time. But Jesus wanted to continue this interaction with him. Was it a, did he accidentally bump into him? I don't think that's how it works with God. He knows exactly where he's supposed to be at whatever time he's supposed to be there. See, you are well. Well, that's important. There were people who had claimed to be healed by the pool or claimed to be healed by someone else only to come find out that it wasn't true. We've even seen this today. People claim to have healing powers, but it's all fake. So Jesus says to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse happened to you. The man went, out, went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. <laughs> and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because... He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus finds him later at this point in this man. And how does this man respond once again? So the first time he throws Jesus under the bus. Does he thank Jesus when he sees him? When he finally meets him? Finally understands who he is? Does, does he become a disciple of Jesus? Does he go throughout town telling everyone what had happened? I finally found the man that healed me. No, he takes the new information, goes back to the very people that want to persecute Jesus and says, oh, I have a name for you. His name is Jesus. If that's not bizarre, I don't know what is. Nowhere else in Scripture do you see someone who is healed and respond like that. It is, it's weird. I'm not sure I've, that's kind of how I remember this story. I think everyone probably remembers the pool of Bethesda, we know that. We remember the man being healed. But do you ever think in your mind, if you go back to the phonographs of how you learned this story, I don't remember this man being a jerk. But clearly there's something wrong with this guy. So why is it that Jesus would choose to heal him? You would think he would only pick people that would be excited about following Jesus. This man shows no gratitude, no faith, and seeks only to protect himself and and ultimately hurt Jesus. On top of this bizarre story is an even stranger statement from Jesus. He says, see you are well. And then comes this phrase. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now if you don't read, if you don't read just what had happened, 
the narrative of the healing. And if you ignore the verses following, you will conclude that Jesus is connecting the man's former problem to his actions. That's, what you, that's how you, I mean, that would be a natural conclusion. Your sin got you into this mess. You better stay away from it so you don't get into something worse. And if that's your conclusion, that is not the message of hope and that is clearly not the message of Christ. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here and here's why. If you look at John 9, when Jesus heals the man born blind, he tells, or actually he rebukes his disciples and says to them, this man is not blind because of someone's sin, actions of sin. It's a result of sin, but not the result of an action either of his parents or of himself. Clearly not himself. He was born that way. The second, now that doesn't mean that you can't suffer as the result of sin. It was happening. Go read Corinthians. Paul is saying, some of you are sick and even dying because of your own sin. And I love what he says. He goes, listen, you're going to suffer enough as a Christian. Don't make it worse by being stupid. Is basically what Paul says. Here's the second reason. Jesus is giving the man an impossible task. Jesus could be saying, don't do that sin again. He didn't say that. Don't do that sin, whatever that sin was, that if you're going to take that conclusion. So nothing worse happens. But it's not what he says. He told the man to be perfect so that nothing worse, worse can happen. Logically, in the man's mind, what worse could happen? He, 38 years living in, in a horrible place, begging constantly for food. It smells awful. Your company is not pleasant. What would be worse than that? Well, I think hell would probably be worse than that, and I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus means. Jesus was giving the man the impossible task so that he would turn to something outside of himself. He was clearly lost. Jesus knew, just like he did with Judas, Jesus knew what this man was doing. He's going to go and take this new information and go get me in trouble again. So he stops the man and says, see, you're well. I'm the one that did that. Hello, it's me. Be perfect so nothing else worse happens. He should have said, how do I do that? But he didn't. He just ran off. How many times have we read in the Bible, Jesus actually gives that message he tells people, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Perfectly obey the law. Now, is that the message of Jesus? Have faith and perfectly obey the law. Which one is it, Jesus? Is it perfectly obey the law or is it have faith? He tells them to be perfect so that they realize they can't be. I think if you conclude anything else other than Jesus is trying to give this man an impossible task so he would see a greater need than his own healing. I think you're going to start putting a law on someone. Walking around in fear. I believe this is the correct way of understanding this. Look down at verse 24 and 25 because Jesus tells the crowd how they should view him. So this man was healed by Jesus. Jesus is interacting with him. Clearly he doesn't know. He's trying to press law upon this man and then misses it. This is what Jesus says in verse 24. Truly I, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the same scenario, same story. Truly, truly I say to you, and 
hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This man clearly is being demonstrating to the reader, to the listener, he's not hearing. Now in John 6, Jesus elaborates this. Those who continually see Jesus, listen to what he's saying, but they can't hear him. And he, he begins to explain why. Look at verse 15. Back to John 5.15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus purposely just threw a grenade, a theological grenade, into the mix to completely blow this up on purpose. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more not to confront him. Jesus, please stopping that. They were so angry. What does it say? They wanted to kill him. So Jesus throws the grenade. It goes boom. And they went from, we don't like you doing this on the Sabbath to, we're going to kill you. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus created this scenario to draw attention to himself, to his ability. One, he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. He would come, the Messiah would come, doing wonders. Clearly, he's performing this wonder so that the Jewish people would see it. Drawing attention to who he was. And when he does draw finally attention to himself, he claims to be God and they want to kill him. From verses 19 through 47 into the chapter, Jesus explains in great detail for the listener how he is equal with God and the only way to be, to be declared right with God is to have faith in him. So the very point of the entire story is keep, he keeps pointing back to himself. Does Jesus have compassion for those who are hurting? Clearly does he want to heal the sick? Absolutely. But the difference between the way we understand this world and the way that the Father understands this world is that we think it in a very temporal form, here and now. Jesus is very clear. He tells his disciples multiple times, I have come to seek and to save what? Those who are sick in need of healing. So what he says. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Those who are going to be punished for their sins, not those who are sick. So if you think about all the interactions he's had with John so far, the Pharisee, the self-righteous Pharisee, you need salvation by faith. The wicked, the, the, the woman caught in adultery, or sorry, the woman at the well, what does she need? She doesn't need to fix her marriage, what? She needs redemption. The official son, why are you here seeking healing? which is not the answer I would have given. But what was he doing? He was stopping the man saying, your son doesn't need healing, you need redemption. And then now, he heals a man that actually doesn't even, from what we know, is not actually a follower, a believer. What we do, what we should be concluding is we come to Christ to find our place in his family. We come to be restored, but not on this earth. 
We will one day have no pain or sorrow. That is a glorious promise, but that promise is coming. It's not here yet. This is the confusion that the Jewish people had. Palm Sunday, Hosanna. They were bringing him in as king. He goes, oh, you don't understand. I'm not king of this world yet. My kingdom is not of this world. That's what he said. How many times do you have to say it? I'm not here to take you out from a Roman impression. I'm not here to restore the land with milk and honey. I'm here to redeem you from yourself, from your sin. So Jesus leaves us here not on this world to fix the pain and suffering, to remove all of its problems, but he leaves us here to spread the same news that he was spreading here in John 5. Things in this life, here is, here is the facts. Things in this life don't get better. They only get worse. It's called getting old. The moment you were born, you were dying. You will die. People around you will suffer. Presenting Jesus as the temporal fix will only take away from the gospel. I'm going to a funeral later today. Another reminder that the hope of Christ is not healing. The hope of Christ is redemption. And that's ultimate healing. Let me read you the end quote from the author I read you earlier. We come together every week to encourage each other as we travel down this painful road. But Luther pointed out, when God chose to save us, he did not follow the way of glory. He did not come as a great hero king, defeating his enemies and establishing a mighty kingdom on earth. Rather, he came as a baby laid in an animal trough, a man of sorrows with no place to lay his his head. And he saved us by the weakness and shaming of dying on a cross. Those who follow him will have crosses of their own. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Not that we have to suffer for our sins, but faith in the gospel, putting our trust in what Christ accomplished for us on his cross, entails acknowledging our weakness, the failure of our own works, the complete abnegation of our glory. Now I titled this sermon, Why Does Jesus Heal? He healed the sick to prepare the way of salvation. If you think that Jesus came to this earth to heal because they needed healing, you missed it. That, that, is, a, that is a confusing Jesus. Either he's got ADD, can't stick around sick people, but clearly he loved to be around sick people. He wasn't powerful enough. He didn't care about everybody. Or there was something inside of them that caused him to want to heal them, so only certain people were choosing to be healed. I don't believe that's how Jesus healed people, or why. One of the greatest burdens we can place on anyone who is suffering is that if they have enough faith, work hard enough at their spiritual disciplines, if they, have, if they are faithful to God, He will bless them, He will heal them, He will make them successful. I used to get into these debates with college students about the miraculous gifts. God needs them or God uses them to transform people from not believing to believing. Well, that's a great example of a man who was healed by Jesus and did not believe. Because it's not the physical healing that we need. It's an internal healing. So when you present to me a message 
that Christianity is about my performance. If I want God to bless me, my family, this world, if we want to fix race in this world, if we want to fix hunger, whatever it is that you are trying to fix in this world, and if your conclusion is Jesus is the one who fixes it, then he is a failing God. Or your message is wrong. And I'm going to click the second one to be true. There's no way I can stand up here and offer you the successful life if you only follow Jesus. Because that is actually not good news. It's only a lie. What is good news is that I will not stand before God and be judged. What is good news is I stand before God now righteous. And the best part of that good news is I stand before God, not judged, and righteous by no works of my own, which means I can't lose it because I didn't earn it. And he's given me one requirement. Faith. What did Jesus tell that crowd that wanted to kill him? Those who believe that I am the Son of God will have life. Those who believe that I am the Son of God and obey are faithful, work hard. He doesn't even say carry the cross. That's the post. That's what happens afterwards. It's the burden we carry. It's not the result of. It's by faith. A theology of glory destroys the work of Christ. It does. Because it turns it into this life being successful versus us truly resting in our pain, in our suffering, in our frustration. Resting in something that's greater than what we are. The moment you take Jesus and make it something other than that, you actually lose the point of the Bible. So as the men get ready to come and prepare for the table, I want to challenge all of our thinking. If in your mind you look at your life this week and you go, well, my life's a mess and it's because of this. And your conclusion is your performance before God, your lack of prayer, your lack of Bible reading, la, 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 whatever else you want to put in there. If that's your conclusion, here's the problem with your conclusion. I know people who are very faithful, more faithful than I would ever be, fight sin stronger than I ever could, and yet live in poverty and pain. How do you conclude that? The Apostle Paul, on a scale, if we were to all take a survey, maybe the best Christian that ever lived, all glory to Christ. That man was not blessed except with pain. And even when he asked Jesus, can we, can we fix this? After the third time, he says, Listen, my grace is sufficient to get you through that. No, we're not fixing it. Paul didn't live a very successful life in that way. As we come to the table, we don't come to the table seeking success, seeking to be renewed, seeking so that our life can be better this week. We come saying without Christ, without belief in Christ, I have nothing. I am nothing. You are going to suffer pain. You are going to suffer trial. You and the people you love will die. Most likely in pain. You can either seek Christ for the relief that he really does offer, which is far greater than any relief here, or you can live in bondage 
thinking that your suffering is a result of your performance when it's not. It's just sin in this world. This world is broken. 